Well, we're continuing in our sermon series, which we've called Not Ashamed, the Glorious Gospel. And throughout this sermon series, we've been looking at these verses, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. And we've been considering these verses because we've been saying that in these verses, we get one of the most concentrated, distilled um, praises of the gospel that we get anywhere in Scripture. And so it's good for us to refresh on what the gospel that we believe is. And if you're listening in and you don't know Christ, this is the good news that we want to share with you. So you've come at the right moment. We're also looking at Romans because Rome was the global city then. And so it helps us understand how the message of Christianity was preached and shared in the context of a global city then. And that helps us to reflect on how we can share it and live it out in our context of living in London, a global city today. And we noticed in Romans 1.16 that Paul starts in a slightly strange way. He says, I'm not ashamed. He puts it in the negative. And that's because, you know, I suggested, because he imagines that, or he knows that, in particularly in the context of Rome, a natural response of the sinful human heart to the gospel is to say, that's shameful. That's not good news. That's bad news. But the Paul himself has gone on that journey whereby he first encountered the gospel, he thought it was bad news. He used to persecute the church. But through faith in Jesus Christ, he's come to see it as really good news, the very best news of all, the glorious gospel. And that's the journey each week we're trying to go on. And we're taking the key themes um, from these verses. We looked, first of all, at the power of the gospel. Then we looked last week with Mark at the salvation of the gospel. This week, we're looking at the righteousness of the gospel. I'm not ashamed because of the righteousness of the gospel. Now, righteousness is a a slightly strange word. It's a peculiarly religious word, but actually its meaning is um, very much common day usage. So we wouldn't use it um, in this way, but righteousness describes, um, you know, the general state of someone's character, a person who is consistent, a person who says um, certain things and then always follows up and does what they say. A person who isn't um, inauthentic. Authenticity is one of the great longings of our current age. We hate the idea that our leaders would be duplicitous. In fact, that's been one of the big themes of the COVID pandemic. Whenever a politician says something, you know, as a matter of decree on guidance, but then does another thing, everyone goes up in arms about it. Well, that's unrighteousness, though we wouldn't use the phrase that way. That's what's being described. That's one way of understanding righteousness. And of course, it's one of the big reasons, I suppose, that people today are so concerned about the abuse scandals in the church and the so-called hashtag church to movement. Because if God is God, then we have an innate sense that he is righteous, and that he's good, that he, he's consistent, that he's fair, that he's just. So doesn't he care about abuse being in his church? Doesn't the church that carry his, carries his name care? We long for justice and consistency and fairness. Righteousness, therefore, can be about someone's character and that quality of fairness. It can also be a relational term, describing um, the state of a relationship between two parties. So think if you're chatting with someone, uh, a friend of yours maybe, and they say, yeah, me and her, we went through a difficult patch, but now we're okay. That would be describing righteousness, being okay with someone, being reconciled, resolved in a right standing with someone is also righteousness. Now, when we look at those two kind of dominant meanings of righteousness, one of the questions we face is, which meaning is Paul going with in our passages that we just had read? 
So when he says in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, it's not immediately clear which kind of um, definition of righteousness he's appealing to. Similarly, in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, he writes, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Is he there referring to God's own righteousness, the, the fairness, the justice of God's character? Or is he referring to right standing, a right relationship between God and people? Wh which one is he referring to? And the commentators use up a lot of ink, you know, really trying to get into it. And we're going to be thinking about that today. We're first of all going to consider the righteousness of God's character, that first definition. Then we're going to be considering the righteousness that God gives, gifts to us. And then we're going to be thinking about how God righteously makes us righteous, the reconciliation between those, because we're going to see their intention. So let's look first of all at the righteousness of God's character. Romans 1.17, if you've got it, just um, look at it with me. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. What type of righteousness is that being talked about? Well, predominantly, the early church understood this to be talking about the way that God was a covenant faithful God who made and kept his promises. And when in Romans 3.21 it talks about the law and prophets testifying to it, the law is the way of saying the first five books of the Bible and the prophets is a way of almost saying the rest of the Old Testament. And so it's saying if you read the Old Testament, what do you see? You see that God is always just. You see that God is always fair. You see that God is a covenant faithful God. He makes promises. He determines a covenant, an agreement with his people. He always keeps his side of the bargain. In the Old Testament, when God made a covenant with Abraham, something rather strange happened, but it wasn't strange at the time. Animals were cut in two. The two halves of the animals, a little bit gruesome as a sacrifice, were cut in two. That was very common practice in the ancient world. Because whenever an agreement or a covenant was cut between two parties, when you cut the two animals or the animals into two halves, what you were saying was, if I break my side of the agreement, my side of the covenant, let me be as this animal is. Let me be cut in two. And so God, by when he cut the agreement with Abraham, by him saying, you know, with the, the cut animals and sacrifice, he's saying, I will never break my side of the bargain. I will always keep my covenant. I will always be faithful. I'm the covenant faithful God. If I don't, then let me be cut in two. And Abraham was agreeing to that as well. And so as we go through the Old Testament, we see that God is amazingly consistent and fair and just. He promised he would rescue his people, and he did. He rescued them from Egypt, out of Egypt, out of Pharaoh's hand. He promised that he would be faithful to them and get them into the promised land, and he did. He led them faithfully, feeding them and caring for them through the desert and took them into the promised land. He promised that he would establish them in the promised land and drive out their enemies, and he did time after time after time. He promised that he would give them a king when they asked, and so he did give them a king, and he established a dynasty through David and through Solomon, his son. He promised that he would be God to them and would be good to them, and he was so good to them, giving them a land flowing with milk and honey. That is, you know, it was abundant and it was prosperous. God is good. God was always faithful. Never once, not even a word of his covenant did he break. But how did the people respond? 
Were they consistent? Did they keep their side of the bargain in the Old Testament? I mean, as soon as God brings them out of Egypt, he tries to bring them to the Mount Sinai to give them the Ten Commandments. And when Moses is up on the mountain, then what do they do? They already turn to false gods and make false gods out of gold, the so-called golden calf, breaking their side of the covenant. When God is trying to lead them through the desert, immediately they're moaning and saying, it would have been better for us to be back in Egypt despite 400 years of horrendous slavery and moaning against God and grumbling. When he tried to bring them into the promised land, they doubted God's goodness. They said, we, we can't defeat these armies, even though those armies were nothing in comparison to the Egyptian army that they'd been saved from. When they were in the promised land, they turned to the false gods of Canaan rather than worshiping the true and living God who had rescued them. When he established the king, they were no longer faithful to God. They failed to keep his covenant, and so God had to bring enemies against them to discipline them and chastise them for breaking the covenant. In other words, God is scrupulously fair. He always keeps his covenant, and his people are so inconsistent, so wayward. And isn't that the same for us? We, we love the idea of fairness. I mean, my children are always saying that's not fair or that's fair. They seem to have just an innate sense. It's not like they've taken a law degree, right? They just know what is fair and what's not fair. And we as human beings, we, we hate it when there's injustice. We're so good at pointing it out. Whether it's football and needing VAR to pass out exactly whether he's one inch over the line or not, or whether it's just you know, looking at our politicians and saying, that's not fair. We know what fairness is. We know what justice is. We call others to such a high standard. So here's the question. Do we keep that standard ourselves? Well, in a brilliant book that I want to commend to you called The Character Gap by a man called Christian Miller, he actually does all the work for us to assess whether people in large and in general are righteous, whether they are fair and just and do what is right. And so what he does is he takes reams of psychological studies that have been peer-reviewed and tested and they look at um, helping people or harming people, lying and cheating. So four chapters, when he looks at lots of studies about how people respond to those situations, and he asks the question, he takes a common sense definition that a good and virtuous person would consistently do what is good when there's no strong barrier or strong reason to prevent them. So he's not saying be perfect all the time, just be consistent. Do what is good when there's no strong reason stopping you doing that. And he said most people would say that's what a virtuous person would be, and that's what most people expect of themselves and one another. Question is, according to the studies, do we do that? And he says no. Time after time, we are woefully inconsistent. Now, I know what you're thinking, because I do the same thing. You're thinking, well, not me. I mean, if I was in one of those studies, I'd be better. Don't delude yourself. We're inconsistent. Even down to small variations in temperature in the room or a bad smell suddenly makes us not do the right thing and do the bad thing, harm people or lie. You know this when you look at your own life. If we took a fearless moral inventory of your life, would you be consistently fair and good? Here's how he concludes it. Just ask yourself the following question. Is what we have said in this chapter about behavior and motivation really what you would expect from virtuous people? What I would expect is a relatively consistent pattern of good behavior. It doesn't have to be perfect or flawless to count as virtuous, but it had better not be fragmented when unjustified cheating, lying, aggressing against others, and failing to help are regularly taking place as we have seen they do in this book. Furthermore, it had better not be sensitive to morally irrelevant factors 
like the temperature in the room or the smells in the air. Page 154 of the conclusion, if you want to look it up. And you see, that's the problem. God is faithful. And we long for the world to be righteous and just and fair. We hate it when it's not. And yet that's the ideal. But the real in our lives, the gap between the ideal and the real is gaping. And so we have a problem. One person who thought a lot about this in the 16th century was a man called Martin Luther. He was the famous reformer. And he did everything he could to try to be consistent and faithful. He used to badger his seniors in the monasteries, telling them, no, I don't feel I've done enough. What must I do to be consistent? I'm constantly failing. And so he would feel the force of needing to be righteous, but he couldn't do it. And he wrote this. My situation was that although I was an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage God. Therefore, I didn't love a just, righteous, and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Do you see what he's saying? For him, God's righteousness wasn't good news. It was bad news because he was failing the test. That's why Paul concludes in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12, these famous words, there is no one righteous, not even one. I'm sorry, that does include you in that category, right? There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good in this way, not even one. Notice the universality of it. No one, not even one, no one, no one. He wants to be really clear that includes you because the ego automatically says, not me, don't you judge me, I know, I'm consistent. I think you're fooling yourself if I can be so bold. No one is righteous. And so whilst on one hand it is good news that God is righteous, on the other hand, for us who are not, it is bad news. So, that's the righteousness of God. Secondly, though, let's look at the good news, which is that the righteousness God gifts to us. I think it's probably because deep down we're all aware of this character gap in our lives, that so much of our effort is trying to be righteous. We don't use that phrasing, of course. The other word that the New Testament uses is a word which, as Mark said last week, we we're understand more commonly, is to justify. So much of our effort is to justify ourselves. Think of the proverbial job interview. They sit across the table from you and implicitly or explicitly they say, justify that you should be selected for this job. Or feel about if you're studying when you go into an exam. What do you feel? You feel like you've got to justify the expenditure with either you or your parents or some other third party has put into the course, right? Um, past three, a number of years ago, there was a young woman who I, who I knew whose father would sign off a weekly email to her as he was asking her how her studies were going with capital letters, you must get a first. There's the pressure to justify yourself, justify my expenditure. And they say of the great cities, of course, that it's about justifying yourself. What's the phrase they use of New York? If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. That's the pressure of being in a city like London, to make it. Why to make it? Because then you can prove to other people, I'm justified. See, I've done enough. I am enough. I can be enough. And I wonder if one of the great things that divides us in the city of London is that there are people walking around pretending they've done enough. And so they look down their noses at other people who have not 
done enough. What's wrong with you? Why can't you pick yourself up by your shoelaces and do more, contribute more? The division in society, the desire and the impetus to justify yourself. But the wonderful truth of the gospel is that though God is righteous, he is also the one who generously, remarkably, gifts us righteousness. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the conclusion. And all are justified or made righteous in the original. Freely, freely, by his grace, through the redemption that came in Jesus Christ. And notice that it's freely. In Romans 3, 21, he says, but now apart from the law. In other words, this is not something you do by your law keeping, by your moral effort, by your zeal, by your character. It doesn't come to you that way. It could never come to you that way because you and I are too inconsistent. We'll always fail the standards. We'll always fall short. The gap between the ideal and the real is too big. But God gives it to us freely as a gift. And a gift, of course, is unearned. It's not something you've earned. It's not something you deserve. It's given to you. God declares you righteous. And on the one hand, it's a wiping away of the debt for your unrighteousness. Romans chapter 3, verse 25 says, God did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, that is his patience, he had left sins committed beforehand unpunished. Think of David. Think of Abraham. Abraham wasn't righteous, and yet God declared him righteous and forgave him. David wasn't righteous. He was an adulterer, and he murdered the husband of the woman he, he was committed adultery with, and yet God had the temerity to declare him righteous. God forgives the unrighteous and declares them righteous. So he wipes the slate clean. He says, you are right with me, even though the reality is you are very much in the wrong with God. Think of it this way. When I was um, in my year between school and university, I went out to New Zealand, partly to play rugby um, and also partly to work at a school for underprivileged children, a school called Dilworth. It's a foundation school which takes children from particularly South Auckland, kind of gang backgrounds and broken homes, children who've had a horrible, horrible time of it, and it pays for everything for them, pays for all their fees and brings them into a private school and gives them a marvelous education, great pastoral care, lots of healing. It was a really formative year for me. I remember one boy particularly who was in the house that I was um, helping to teach and to tutor in, and when he came in, he was angry, and the Lord knows he had so much to be angry about. He'd been horribly treated. His parents had split up and broken down, and he'd gone through a lot, but he was so angry, and so he was so badly behaved. And he was on countless final warnings, final warnings for aggression, for fights, for disobedience, for failing to turn up and things like that. And eventually it came to a head where the headmaster called him in and showed him his disciplinary record, which was quite something. And then the headmaster, who was a Christian, did something remarkable. He said to him, Bo, this is your disciplinary record. I'm going to wipe it clean. And apparently he ripped it up in front of this boy, this young boy. And the boy left that room, and he was never the same again. I had the privilege of going back a number of years later, and I heard that actually he'd gone on to become the head of school. Because something like that changes you. 
Friends, that's a description. That's a picture of what God does with our unrighteousness. He says, you're not guilty. He says, I've expunged the record. He's ripped it up. He's thrown it away into the sea of God's forgetfulness, never to be brought against you again. Your conscience may accuse you. Other people may say to you, I know what you did. I was there. And God says, it's all forgiven. The slate is wiped clean. Not because you deserve it, not because you've tried hard, not even because you've declared you're going to try and do better next time. I'm just doing it as a gift. You, the unrighteous, are declared righteous. But the amazing thing is it doesn't stop there. Not only have the slate been wiped clean, but also God has gifted to you the righteousness of Christ. Because here's the problem. As amazing as God's forgiveness is, if God has merely wiped the slate clean, then you now have a blank slate. And the blank slate is not a great thing. Because you now suddenly feel, well, I've got to write on the slate, and what am I going to write on it? Well, I have to do better than I did last time, because last time I had all that litany of sins. So now I have to try really hard to show that I really mean it. And now I've got the pressure of a God who's forgiven me, and so I've got to really show him that I mean it. And so the pressure. Many, many people are crushed in the Christian life because they've forgotten the doubleness of God's righteousness. Not only that the slate is wiped clean, that God declares you righteous, but also this, that Christ's righteousness is gifted to you. He gifts you his righteousness. That means that Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, lived the perfect life that you and I long to live in our better moments. But he also died the death, taking the punishment that you deserve. So that when God looks at you, he doesn't see a a slate wiped clean only. He also sees Christ's life on your behalf. What does he say about his son? Remember at his baptism, as he rises up out of the water, the spirit descends on the Lord Jesus Christ like a dove, like an anointing of, of pleasure, of joy in his son. Remember his transfiguration, he says, this is my son, listen to him. He's a proud father, he loves his father, his beloved son. And so my friend, when he looks at you and he sees Christ's life, he loves you because of what Christ has done for you. He sees his life in your place. So it's not only that the debt has been canceled out and you've now got zero in the bank of debt, but also he's filled your bank account up with all of Christ's righteousness. Do you get this? He couldn't be more delighted in you. He couldn't love you anymore because he loves you as much as he loved his perfect son. No condemnation, now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head and clothed in righteousness, Christ's righteousness, divine. This is wonderful, but it does raise a tension, one that I want to resolve just before we finish. I mean, how does God do this? How can he just declare guilty people righteous? How can he just wipe the slate clean? Look, we hate it when there's a cover-up. We hate it when institutions minimize and say, well, they're going to try differently next time. If someone's done something wrong, we need them to be held to account. So doesn't God hold us to account? Isn't this the problem that the church minimizes its abuses because God minimizes the abuses we've all committed? How does he do that? How is this not just the divine cover-up or the divine minimizing of all sin? You know, does he just sit there, shrug his shoulders and say, boys will be boys, girls will be girls, they're not perfect? Yeah, but that's not acceptable, is it? Particularly not when gross evil is done. No, 
Wonderfully, God righteously makes us righteous. Look at Romans 3, verse 25. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just, that is righteous, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus Christ. How did he do that? How can he be just, righteous, and the one who justifies the unrighteous? Very beginning of verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, or literally as a propitiation, the one who takes away anger through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Do you remember how at the beginning I said in an ancient covenant that it was cut, and so the animal would be cut in two, saying, do this to me if I break it. Jesus Christ never did anything wrong, but on the cross he said, let that be done to me for the way that they've broken it. He was the sacrifice who was cut in half on the cross. He lived the perfect life, but he took the full penalty. Imagine for a moment, one point in time, all of God's right, righteous, just, settled anger and everything we've done wrong as human beings, all of the abuses that have occurred, all of the way the vulnerable have been exploited, all of the ways those things have been covered up, all of the times that people have lied and wounded other people, all the harm that's been done, all of the hurt in the world. Imagine how you should feel about that. Now imagine the perfection of God and how he feels about that. The sadness, the indignation, the anger about it, the righteous anger. Now imagine in one point in time that that focuses on one person. All of that indignation, anger, sadness, righteousness is focused 2,000 years ago on the Lord Jesus Christ when he dies on the cross. He takes it all. No wonder he died. He died crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken so you will never be forsaken. He died so that you can have life. He was made to look unrighteous on the cross as a criminal dying the worst of criminals' death, so that you don't have to fear being a criminal. He, the unrighteous, sorry, he, the righteous, died for you, the unrighteous, and he did it so that God can righteously say, without sweeping sin away, without minimizing it at all, without covering it up, my daughter, my son, you're righteous. It is finished, the Messiah dies, cut off for sin but not his own. Accomplished is the sacrifice. The great redeeming work is done. It is great, isn't it? And so at the beginning of the talk, I mentioned Martin Luther. Well, that wasn't the full quote. Let me give you the full quote. My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience. I had no confidence that my merit would assuage God. So I didn't love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Then, then I grasped, through gift of sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn, <laughs> to have gone through open doors into paradise. Do you know this paradise? Do you feel reborn when you hear it say, that's true of me? If not, put your trust in Jesus Christ and make it true of you. 
as I close, just two brief areas of application to think about and mull this over some more. First of all, to our hearts. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book, um, The Causes of Spiritual Depression, or Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cures, argues that one of the problems that most Christians experience is they don't know the doubleness of God's righteousness or the doubleness of God's grace. In other words, many Christians get that they're, they're forgiven, that the slate's been wiped clean, but they haven't got that they've also got God's righteousness. And so they're constantly trying to prove themselves and prove themselves to other people or prove themselves to themselves. And if that's you, perhaps the reason that maybe you're so brittle at taking feedback, that it's such a big deal for you to say sorry to anybody, that when someone wrongs you, you fly off the handle and you get so spiky about it and you say, I'm never going to talk to her again or him again. I can't possibly forgive them. You don't know how they treated me. It's because you haven't grasped the doubleness of God's grace. Not only that he forgives you, but he also gives you Christ's righteousness. And that fills you up and gives you robustness, gives you an ability to flourish in the world. Do you know that? Do you enjoy that? If you do, then it should make a marked difference in your ability to take and receive forgiveness and say sorry. Secondly, not only to our hearts, but also to our witness, this is good news. But this is also good news for our city. Right now, our city is really battling, as with Western society, of this whole point of injustice. We heard it in Elizabeth's prayers, racial injustice, abuse and the injustice of that, institutional injustice. And here's the question. If we merely respond by cancelling everyone out who makes a mistake, where are we going to be left? Everyone will get cancelled in the end. And so what, we all walk around terrified that someone's going to find that tweet from 10 years ago or raise that problem and fly off the handle about it and cancel us too? It's just mutual cancelling and no one's left. So how can we hold a high standard of justice and yet also foster reconciliation. This is the good news we need to hear. So talk to your friends about it and say, you know what, this liberates me to be open about my failures but not to trivialize my failures. This is the God who is just and perfect but also has found a way to forgive people whilst not sweeping it under the carpet. Don't you want to hear about this? This can bring real healing in our society. Come, come here. Come see how we're trying to work this out in our church. Talk to me about how I'm trying to work this out in my life. That's how you witness today to a generation longing for authenticity and seeking not to cancel everybody out. God's righteousness gifted to us in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, this is the core of the gospel in many ways, Lord, and what a wonderful core it is. The white, hot, moral purity of you, a righteous God, and yet the incredible, fierce, generous grace and love of a God who justifies the ungodly. Help us to live in the light of this. May this change our hearts. May this change our witness, we ask, for Jesus' sake. Amen.